fasten your seatbelt, folks. Today on Love and Friendship, we are talking about Gertrude's The Sorrows of Young Virtue, and oh man, does this one have a bit of a legacy attached to it. Um, when I was originally setting out to create the curriculum for this class, I noticed that I did in fact want to talk about romanticism, and I did definitely want to talk about exactly how romantics view the whole love-friendship thing. Seems like kind of a big deal, because, you know, their name is Romantic and everything, and they definitely have a very pointed and very unusual and very different attitude towards the whole love-friendship thing. But you poke through the philosophy of erotic love and, you know... The only people you're going to read are, like, Schopenhauer, who's convinced that love doesn't exist, and Nietzsche, who's convinced that love is a trap, and nobody's going to get into the whole actual business of romanticism. Like, Hegel's theoretically the right time period, and Hegel does, in fact, have to say, have some very pointed romantic-ish things to say about love, but because, again, our textbook is apparently not paying attention to 80% of what's going on in the whole love discussion, that one is not the part that he includes. So we don't get that. So if I wanted to talk about romanticism and not, like, the various, like, responses to romanticism in philosophy, but, like, actual romanticism with all the passion and the sweating and the, you know, suffering and dying and all that fun stuff... That was going to have to do some actual, like, inclusion of romantic writers, literature, more of that stuff, which is fine. I'd like to incorporate literature into this class anyway. As you can see, I use Dante to introduce modernism. By all means, let's use Goethe to introduce romanticism. Um, why Goethe? Why not, you know, Byron or Wordsworth or any of the other heavy-duty romantic poets that we're more familiar with? Well, for one thing, I'm more familiar with Goethe. For another thing, Goethe is the one that everybody in the at least Eastern Europe is going to be pointing to for the next couple of hundred years, and that means if we're going to be reading Nietzsche, if we're going to be reading the Russians, if we're going to be reading virtually any you know European philosophy besides the French and the Brits and the occasional American thrown in for flavor, we're going to need to be at least a little bit familiar with Goethe's ideas. What's more, the Sturm und Drang movement, which is technically not romanticism, but it's more like romanticism with all the nice edges, you know, restored, and now it's rough and ugly instead of the, you know, nice, well-pruned topiary garden that Byron and Wordsworth are hanging out in. Um, it's probably for the best that we are getting the ugly version with all the warts reattached and, you know, the actual passion thrown in, seeing as romanticism is kind of all about the whole passion, warts, and human ugliness thing. Um, but we're already doing quite a lot of preface here, and the fact of the matter is, Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Virtue very much kind of kicks off the whole Romanticism movement. It is sort of the distillation of all of Romanticism's ideas in its most unkempt and unpolished form. Um, so rather than do what we usually do and start off with a long rambling diatribe about history, which ultimately devolves into us talking about the work of philosophy or literature that we want to discuss, we're going to flip the script. Today we're going to start with Goethe, and we're going to work our way into exactly what Romanticism is all about, how this book translates into Romanticism generally, what this is going to mean for Europe in the 19th century, and for America and virtually everyone else for that matter, as well as the context and everything that goes along with it. Uh, but, and this is a very large but in this particular case, 
this text comes with huge caveats. Um, we are going to talk very openly about suicide today. Um, I mean, even if I didn't want to talk about suicide openly, Vircher certainly does. So it's worth noting that if you are, you know, if you haven't read the text yet, or if you are curious about whether or not you want to read the text, be aware there's some hardcore discussion of suicide here. So this is part of the romantic agenda, and we will definitely talk about that. But again, we're starting with the text today. So let's look at what the text is actually doing. Now, once again, I have excerpted the living crap out of this, and I am definitely not happy with the excerpts that I've come up with. It would probably be to everyone's advantage if we could, in fact, like sit down and read the, you know, 100-whatever-page text of The Sorrows of Young Virtue in its entirety, but I do not want to bog down the class for an entire week while we talk about, you know, something that isn't philosophy, um, as much as this is going to seriously inform philosophy for the next hundred years and change. Um, so we only get bits and pieces, and I think I've chosen some pretty good bits and some pretty good pieces. I think I've gotten the gist of what's going on here. I hope that I have communicated the gist of what's going on here, but keep in mind, as much as this looks like a fairly complete short story-ish kind of thing, it really is missing a lot. Um, so if it feels rushed, yeah, it is rushed. We're missing tons of context, we're missing tons of detail, we're missing tons of subtle character development. I'm mostly just hitting the main beats, the stuff that I remembered from the first time that I read this, and it, like, blew my mind, and I very much was scarred by Goethe's notion of romanticism for many years to come. So let's talk about the main points, first of all, here. So what you have, in fact, missed is that Virtue is this student fresh out of university who has wandered into this small town where he's going to be a small-town teacher for the rest of his next few years or something, um, and what turns out to be the rest of his life, as it happens. Um, notable here is the point that, again, city boy goes to the country is a fairly important romantic trope, um, something that the romantics are very interested in, just as we were talking about Rousseau last time as sort of prioritizing the state of nature and nature generally over against the industrialized, urbanized European world, like let's all get out of Paris and go take a walk in the countryside. Virtue is doing this. Like, he is doing this in his life. His life is shaped in this way. Um, and he comes to the countryside, is coming to, you know, teach all of these yokels about literature and philosophy and culture and all that fun stuff. And he meets Charlotte. Um, so our first little passage here, the June 16th section, is Virtue's first interaction with Charlotte. This is literally the first time that he meets her. Um, and you'll notice a couple of details here that I want to sort of, like, point out. Um, first, I want to stress Goethe's style um, in communicating Virtue's thoughts to us. Um, the epistolary novel, like the novel that is made up of letters being written from the characters to one another, is very much an old idea at this point. Like, the novel has is, at this point, like, a hundred years old. Um, like, people... Scholars usually point to Robinson Crusoe in, like, 1704, I want to say, as, like, the first proper novel. Um, and many novels since are adopting the epistolary form, i.e. it's just letters back and forth. Um, Vircher is a little bit different insofar as it is just letters from Vircher to his friend who we never, like, actually interact with or meet. Um, but it's also worth noting that Vircher is not our normal letter writer. Like, just looking at that opening passage, 
What? Why do I not write to you? You lay claim to learning and ask such a question. You should have guessed that I am well, that is to say, in a word, I have made an acquaintance who has won my heart. I have... I know not. To give you a regular account of the manner in which I have become acquainted with the most amiable of women would be a difficult task. I am a happy and contented mortal, but a poor historian. An angel? Nonsense. Everybody so describes his mistress, and yet I find it impossible to tell you how perfect she is, or why she is so perfect. Suffice it to say she has captivated all my senses. So much simplicity, with so much understanding, so mild, and yet so resolute, a mind so placid, and a life so active. From the very beginning, or at least the very beginning of our, our excerpt here, throughout it is also clearly the case, Vircher is frequently taken aback. He is unable to communicate. As much as this is presented to us as though it is a letter that he is writing to a friend, it lacks the usual polish we would come to expect. Like in the process of letter writing in the 18th century and the 19th century, Typically, your writers are going to like sit back, carefully consider their thoughts, write in a way that is, you know, on the one hand, fairly like off the cuff, off the cuff, off, off the shoulder, fairly honest and, and sort of direct. But at the same time, it is polished to some degree. Like people have erasers at this point; it's a thing. Like yes, people are usually writing in ink, but they usually prepare their thoughts beforehand. Usually, when you see an epistolary novel, like a novel written in the form of letters. It has this sort of restrained quality to it. Like, everybody speaks their mind, everybody is very measured. Every now and again you'll see some, like, glimpse of the passions underlying the surface. But Vircher, you'll notice it's right on his sleeves. He's not even grammatical in some of his sentences. Like, it's clear that he's stuttering through it. He's just writing whatever comes to mind, whatever he gets to the page. And later, when we hear the characters characterizing him as this overly passionate young man, this is how this style is developed by Goethe. Um, Vircher is not presented as though he is this carefully measured, rational individual. He is being carried away by all of his passions. Not just his passion for Charlotte, but his passion for life. His passion for experiences. His excitement gets the better of him all the time. Both stylistically in the way that he writes, as well as like in his actual actions and character. What he is writing about. And notice... Even before we've met Charlotte in the in the like actual progress of the story, Vircher is writing about her. Like you reading this first couple of lines, why do I not write to you to give you a regular account of the manner in which I have become acquainted with the most amiable of women? Like, notice that Vircher has already had this happen to him. Like, we all know this. Again, this is fairly typical of the epistolary style to sort of write about the events of the day as though the day is already over. Because, you know, it is. That's how you write letters. Um, but notice, too, that, like, we're brought into Vircher's experience not in a sort of moment-by-moment -moment way, but processed through Vircher's very sort of confused, very passionate, very, um, like, forcefully emotional method and style. This is part of what Goethe is trying to communicate, and this is one of the hallmarks of romantic writing and romantic values as well. Now, notice, too, exactly what happens in, in this process. Like, we get this great line from the aunt at the top of page two of our excerpt, Take care that you do not lose your heart. Why, said I, meaning Verter, because she is already engaged to a very worthy man, she replied, who has gone to settle his affairs upon the death of his father and will succeed to a very considerable inheritance. But notice Verter's response. This information possessed no interest for me. And yet, 
as we will see, like by the end of this scene, when Charlotte and Vertra are dancing at the ballroom, you know, Charlotte even mentions, hey, I'm engaged, hope you noticed. And Vertra is like, completely beside himself. Like, he can't even dance through the rest of, of the night. Like, he's he's confused and he's stumbling over himself. Like, he did not heed his aunt's warning. He remembers that he was warned, but it didn't matter. He was definitely carried away. He did, in fact, as his aunt warns, lose his heart. Um, but notice, too, that Goethe is kind of signaling to us, like, hey, Vertur is getting carried away. Like, Vertur is not necessarily trustworthy. He is not necessarily virtuous. He is not necessarily an ideal person, like an ideal character. He is not necessarily being held up as a role model. This is complicated by the fact that, like, absolutely, Europe adopts Vertur as their role model, and, and this is kind of like the hero of the romantics, like the romantic or Byronic hero is absolutely this Verturian mold where it's, you know, carried away by the least, you know, experiences and, and very passionate and young and inexperienced and sort of just following life where it takes them. Um, but Goethe is sort of hedging that here. Um, Goethe is not saying be like Verter as much as Verter gives us lots of arguments to be like him. Um, Goethe is at least to some degree sort of defending himself from the accusation that he's telling people to, you know, do the Verter thing. Um, but notice to Charlotte, the way that she is characterized in this first gigantic paragraph on page two. I alighted and a maid came to the door and requested us to wait a moment for her mistress. I walked across the court to a well-built house and descending the flight of steps in front, opened the door and saw before me the most charming spectacle I had ever witnessed. Six children from 11 to 2 years old were running about the hall and surrounding a lady of middle height with a lovely figure, dressed in a robe of simple white, trimmed with pink ribbons. She was holding a rye loaf in her hand and was cutting slices for the little ones all around in proportion to their age and appetite. She performed her task in a graceful and affectionate manner, each claimant awaiting his turn with outstretched hands and boisterously shouting his thanks. Some of them ran away at once to enjoy their evening meal, whilst others of a gentler disposition retired to the courtyard to see the strangers and to survey the carriage in which their Charlotte was to drive away. Pray forgive me for giving you the trouble to come for me and for keeping the ladies waiting, but dressing and arranging some household duties before I leave had made me forget my children's supper, and they do not like to take it from anyone but me. I uttered some indifferent compliment, but my whole soul was absorbed by her air, her voice, her manner, and I had scarcely recovered myself when she ran into her room to fetch her gloves and fan. The young ones threw inquiring glances at me from a distance whilst I approached the youngest, a most delicious little creature. He drew back, and Charlotte, entering at that very moment, said, Louise, shake hands with your cousin. The little fellow obeyed willingly, and I could not resist giving him a hearty kiss, notwithstanding his rather dirty face. Cousin, said I to Charlotte as I handed her down, do you think I deserve the happiness of being related to you? She replied with a ready smile, oh, I have such a number of cousins that I should be sorry if you were the most undeserving of them. In taking leave, she desired her next sister, Sophie, a girl about eleven years old, to take great care of the children and to say goodbye to Papa for her when, she, when he came home from his ride. She enjoined to the little ones to obey their sister Sophie as they would herself, upon which some promised that they would, but a little fair-haired girl about six years old looked discontented and said, "'But Sophie is not you, Charlotte, and we like you best.' The two eldest boys had clambered up the carriage, and, at my request, she permitted them to accompany us a little way through the forest, upon their promising to sit very still and hold fast. 
Notice the character that we're presented here. Notice the way that Virtua responds to her. There's a ton to unpack here. Um, first, notice we are not presented with a woman who is just apart from the rest of humanity, the way that Dante presents Beatrice, for example. Charlotte is presented as holy and pure. Notice that she's wearing white with the pink ribbons. Notice that she has this maternal quality as she's initially introduced to us. But notice that the two sort of paradigms, the you know maternal figure and this you know pure virginal figure, are united in the person of Charlotte. Which is kind of weird. It's something that Goethe is going to do fairly often. It's something that the Romantics are going to do fairly often. But notice that the locus of what constitutes a beautiful woman, an idealized woman, has shifted a bit here. Charlotte is not just, you know, pure and virginal and, you know, demure and modest and all those things that Rousseau said that a woman should be, but on the contrary, she is surrounded by children. She is prov providing for them. She is loving and she is innocent, but she is also, you know, happy and caught up in the, the circumstances of the moment. She gets caught up in the dance. She is very accommodating. She is loving. She is, you know, sort of, you know, open about her thoughts and her mind. Like, she's not totally, like, telling everybody what everything that is in her mind, but she isn't nearly the sort of stuck-up, quiet, like, carefully trained, carefully self-censoring person that Rousseau is celebrating so much in the Emile. Um, by contrast, notice, too, that she is a village girl, not, you know, one of these highfalutin noble ladies with all of their fancy dresses and fancy outfits and fancy talk and fancy wit. Charlotte is simple. Um, and this reflects another sort of shift in what the ideal woman is in, you know, the, the romantic ideal of, of Europe. Um, Charlotte isn't cultured. Charlotte isn't groomed. Charlotte isn't manicured or carefully preparing herself for things. She's in a rush. She doesn't have time for that stuff. She's in the middle of dressing and she remembers, oh yeah, I have to give dinner to all of the kids, and she's, like, when we see her, she's not, you know, carefully prepped and ready to go and ready to receive them and, you know, in her, her best dress and so on and so forth. No, she's, like, in half-dressed, you know, carrying this loaf of rye bread and distributing bread to the kids. Like, she is in the middle of life. She is not removed from it. She is not Beatrice sitting on the throne in the third circle of heaven next to Mary and Rachel and all of the great women of the Old and New Testaments. She is not removed from her experience. She is right there in the middle of it. She is alive, vivacious. She is more than just a person to be admired from a distance. She is a person in the middle of her own experience, in the middle of her own life. Virtur, however, responds with virtually the same kind of courtly love, like intoxication that we've seen before, but with an important difference. Virtur, rather than being sort of enamored with this woman and therefore obliged to hide his emotion, Virtur gives vent to it. He expresses it. He cannot be, you know, contained enough to, like, couch all of his words in delicate phrases and witty ex expressions. He can't, you know, pretend like he doesn't feel anything the way that the courtly lovers were often instructed to do. He is too passionate. He is too caught up with her. He admires her as strongly as any one of those courtly lovers ever did, as strongly as Dante loved his Beatrice, but he is not controlled in his love. 
And I want to stress this because this is one of those key differences that the Romantics are going to emphasize over and against all of the various people who have been writing about love to this point. Like, notice, virtually every philosopher who has discussed love at this point has either characterized love as a passion to be, you know, transmuted into something more perfect, like Plato or the Christians, emphasizing that, like, the transcendent love is good, but the physical love is bad, and therefore, you know, physical love is good only as a method of getting to that transcendent love. Or, alternatively, they've straight out said, you know, love should be controlled. Love should be sort of governed the way that Wollstonecraft has emphasized it, the way that Rousseau to some degree has emphasized it. They are very much stressing, like, love is something that needs to be tamed. It needs to be used in certain cases. You need to be careful not to love the wrong people or the wrong things. Vercher, however, gives total vent to his passion. Like, he cannot control himself. He stresses to everyone around him that he cannot control himself. And he, in fact, sort of seems to praise this quality about himself. And Goethe, by extension, seems to praise it as well. Again, at the dance, when he's dancing with Charlotte, he is utterly carried away by her. Um, he is utterly transfixed by her character, her beauty, her whole self, her whole quality. And notice that this isn't just physical passion, nor is it just the spiritualized passion. It is both. Um, he admires her mental characteristics, her personality, her character, as much as he admires her beauty and her body and, you know, is drawn in by her sexuality. Um, he is very much caught up by the whole person. So in that sense, you know, remember Montaigne talking about like, oh, well, you know, some friends only hold me by a quarter or a corner where some friends hold me by the whole self. And that's the rarest, the greatest kind of friendship. Notice that Virtue is carried away completely. It is his entire self that is carried away by Charlotte's uh, virtues. Um, she is both the virtuous woman, the virtuous person that we have sort of been emphasizing Plato and Aristotle, uh, the virtuous person that many of the friendship uh, lectures and the, many of the friendship philosophers have sort of been emphasizing at the same time as she has this, as she is this beautiful specimen, this perfect image of beauty, the way that Plato has described it, the way that Dante has sort of emphasized the same. She is the complete package in short. And as a consequence, Virtue is carried away completely. Not just some part of himself that he could theoretically restrain or control. No, the whole of him is involved in the whole of her. That's very much the way that this is framed. Um, now notice, too, that some of the things that we've said about love also don't apply here. When Albert, in fact, shows up on July 30th, 30th Virtue's response is not to immediately hate him, the way that Spinoza would have characterized it. Where, you know, like, since there is this one person, and only one person can have control of this person, Virtue would therefore fall in love with Charlotte and hate Albert. But in fact, his relationship with Albert is a little bit more complicated than that. Yes, he does resent Albert, and yes, he is very grumpy that Albert can't keep up with his rapid pace, and when he has his long conversation about passion all the way up to suicide, he's grumpy that Albert can't follow him. Like, he has that line at the end of uh, their discussion, how rarely in this world do men understand each other. Like, why can't he communicate his ideas, his thoughts to Albert? Why doesn't Albert take it away? But at the same time, at the beginning of August 12th, he, he starts his whole letter by saying, certainly Albert is the best fellow in the world. 
And he seems to be honest about it. This doesn't seem to be irony or self-government, although we may very well suspect Vircher of feeling that way. No, Albert is a good person. And as much as Vircher wants to, you know, have Charlotte all to himself, he isn't trying to, like, kill Albert or, you know, get him out of the way in some way. He's not trying to turn Charlotte's mind against Albert. He respects Albert too much. There is something fatal about the entire situation, start to finish, and Virtue seems to be on board with its fatality. Goethe, too, seems to be on board with the fatality of the situation. At no point in The Sorrows of Young Virtue does Goethe seem to offer a way out to Virtue. Um, at no point does it seem like Virtue is making the wrong decision in kind of following his love to its natural, deadly conclusion. Instead, Goethe is very much emphasizing that this is, in its way, admirable. And to drive that home, let's look at the discussion that Albert and, and uh, Virtue have on August 12th, because, again, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, notice that the two are also presented as though they're, they're contrasting figures. Like in the, the earlier ch chapter on July 30th, he... he mentions, I cannot help esteeming Albert. The coolness of his temper contrasts strongly with the impetuosity of mine, which I cannot conceal. He has a great deal of feeling and is fully sensible of the treasure he possesses in Charlotte. He is free from ill humor, which you know is the fault I detest most. Notice, on the one hand, uh, Virtue is emphasizing that um, like he can't help admiring Albert, like, Albert is a good, upstanding man. Like, a perfectly upstanding man. He is an ideal husband for Charlotte. He is wealthy, he is careful, he is rational, he is well-considered. He's a perfect enlightenment suitor. And that's one of the things that Gerda is emphasizing here. Like, virtue stands in contrast with enlightenment philosophy represented in the person of Albert. Albert is a good Enlightenment scholar. He believes in rationality. He believes in, you know, the triumph of science and rationality over the weaknesses of human nature. But Virtue, Virtue is personified the weaknesses of human nature. He is absolutely carried away by his passions. He is absolutely, like, unstoppably selfish. Um, not in some, you know destructive or vicious way, like he's not selfish like greedy people, but he is selfish in the sense of his passions are so strong that he can't help but desire Charlotte, and he can't restrain himself from desiring Charlotte to the point that it carries him away to his own destruction. So he has this conversation with Albert, the passionate soul against the well-tempered, careful, rational soul. Um, and he says, he's walking up and down the room, he's, his eyes fall upon the pistols. Lend me those pistols, said I, for my journey. By all means, he replied, if you will take the trouble to load them, for they only hang there for form. And he mentions, you know, I bought these pistols to protect myself, and I gave them to the servant, but the servant shot himself accidentally, so as a result, I keep them unloaded. I'm being very careful, is basically what Albert is communicating here. Um, but notice, as they're having this conversation, Virtue takes the unloaded pistol and sticks it to his temple, as though he were to shoot himself. And Albert gets upset. What do you mean, cried Albert, turning back the pistol? It is not loaded, said I. And even if not, he answered with impatience, what can you mean? I cannot comprehend how a man can be so mad as to shoot himself. And the bare idea that shocks me. Again, very Enlightenment thinking. Suicide would not enter the mind of any Enlightenment philosopher. They are too rational for it. They too highly regard human nature, human dignity. 
Why would anyone commit suicide? It's the least logical thing that you can do to destroy oneself. Have you not read of science and the goals of nature and preserving the human form and aiming the human form towards self-perfection? Definitely not self-destruction. That makes as little sense as anything. But Verger doesn't respond by saying, well, you're right, your rationality has convinced me. Instead, he responds, "Why? but why should anyone, said I, in speaking of an action, venture to pronounce it mad or wise, good or bad? What is the meaning of all this? Have you carefully studied the secret motives of our actions? Do you understand? Can you explain the causes which occasion them and make them inevitable? If you can, you will be less hasty with your decision. But you will allow, said Albert, that some actions are criminal. Let them spring from whatever motives they may. I granted it and shrugged my shoulders. But still, my good friend, I continued, there are some exceptions here, too. Theft is a crime, but the man who commits it from extreme poverty with no design but to save his family from perishing, is he an object of pity or of punishment? Who shall throw the first stone at a husband who, in the heat of just resentment, sacrifices his faithless wife and her perfidi perfidious seducer? Or the young maiden who, in her weak hour of rapture, forgets herself the impetuous joys of love. Even our laws, cold and cruel as they are, relent in such cases and withhold their punishment. In short, as much as we may condemn crimes and criminals, we recognize exceptional cases. If a family is pushed to the brink of starvation, do we really blame them if they steal food for themselves? If a man is pushed to the brink of madness by, you know, finding his wife in bed with another lover, and he kills them both, don't we recognize that and consider that and sort of, like, limit the punishment that we assess to him? Isn't he to some degree justified? But Albert fights back. That is quite another thing, because a man under the influence of violent passion loses all power of reflection and is regarded as intoxicated or insane. It's not the same thing. Oh, you people of sound understandings, I, Virtue replied, smiling, are ever ready to exclaim extravagance and madness and intoxication. You moral men are so calm and so subdued. You abhor the drunken man and detest the extravagant. You pass by like the Levite and thank God like the Pharisee that you are not like one of them. I have been more than once intoxicated. My passions have always bordered on extravagance. I am not ashamed to confess it. For I have learned by my own experience that all extraordinary men who have accomplished great and astonishing actions have ever been decried by the world as drunken or insane. And in private life, too, is it not intolerable that no one can undertake the execution of a noble or generous deed without giving rise to the exclamation that the doer is intoxicated or mad? Shame upon you, ye sages! Notice what Virtue is suggesting here. Yes, we say intoxication, madness, yes, carried away by their passions leads you to insanity. You keep saying that, but you fail to notice that all the great accomplishments of human beings, all the great men who ever lived, were always called intoxicated and insane. What Virtue is implying here is that all great men are men of great passion. And then all of that emphasis in the Enlightenment about rationality, about you know science conquering all, about the utopian society, what Virtue is effectively saying here is no. Great things don't get accomplished through rationality and milquetoast politics. Ultimately, the great things of this world are accomplished by people of great appetites, of great desire, of great passion. Rather than rejecting these people who cannot temper themselves, virtue lionizes them, 
romanticizes them, turns them into heroes in their own right. And notice how huge a difference this is from all the philosophy that we have discussed up until this point. Like, we've had multiple philosophers stress that, like, a friendship could be so deep, so all-consuming that, like, two souls become one. But it is always coupled with the idea that both souls are highly rational, highly virtuous people, people in control of their own character. Remember Montaigne and Cicero and Aquinas, they all stress, you know, a vicious man cannot be a good friend. He is too, you know, wrapped up in his selfishness. But what Virtue is saying is, what you call viciousness, I call virtue. When you say that being carried away by your passions leads you to madness and badness, viciousness, self-destruction, I say that that is the only hope for greatness. It is the highest of the virtues. And this is the foundation of romantic thought. But notice, too, that he brings God into this as well. Notice that sentence where he remarks, you detest the extravagant, you pass by like the Levite, and thank God like the Pharisee that you are not like one of them. He's using the parable of the Good Samaritan to, draw, to drive home his point here, and he'll do it again later. He stresses that those people who are just like walking by the passionate, the, the extremely, you know, ex emotionally excited, are ignoring them leaving them to their fate, not helping them. They are leaving them in the side of the road like the Pharisee, like the Levite, these priests who are supposed to be leaders of the community and yet reject these people who cannot share their high morality, their high rationality. This is unchristian, Virtue accuses. If you really were as rational and as virtuous as you said, you would have pity, you would take compassion, you would care for these people you would recognize that they are also humans. Your Enlightenment philosophy excludes anyone who is not behaving rationally by its very nature, and thus it is flawed. Thus you are excluding an entire component of the human experience. You are rejecting something that is so relentlessly human and yet condemning these people to death as a consequence, rejecting the, the opportunity to help them the way that you should. Now, Albert rejects this, and, but once again, Virtue sort of pushes back. Like, he finds himself frustrated by the fact that Albert, in his incredible rationality, refuses to acknowledge how important this is to Virtue. Um, notice that Virtue is stressing, you know, the goodness, the greatness, the importance of these passions. And while on the one hand he admires Albert, he admires his cool-headedness, he stresses that Albert is wrong to stress his own rationality and, importantly, to impose that rational morality on others. Instead, he compares the you know, business of, of feeling passionate, feeling emotion, to being sick, feeling a fever. Human nature, I continued, he says on page 9, has its limits. It is able to endure a certain degree of joy, sorrow, and pain, but becomes annihilated as soon as this measure is exceeded. The question, therefore, is not whether a man is strong or weak, but whether he is able to endure the measure of his sufferings. Suffering may be moral or physical, and in my opinion, it is just as absurd to call a man a coward who destroys himself as to call a man a coward who dies of malignant fever. Now, there are a couple things we need to say about this. First of all, this is a really important moment in the whole history of philosophy. As we are talking about like emotional 
distress, being compared and, and sort of recognized as potentially an illness of some kind, there are sort of we're already introducing this really major contention that is going to haunt the rest of the 19th century and indeed the 20th century as well. And we will see this for sure in Freud especially. The idea that the passions, the sort of emotions, can be treated as and should be viewed as infirmity or madness, a sort of psychological disorder, a sickness of the mind on par with any sickness of the body, this is significant. Like, the Enlightenment thinkers would not have agreed with this statement in general. Like, irrationality is not a sickness. It is a failing of human beings. It is immoral to be, to be irrational, the Enlightenment thinkers would say. Doing, in doing so, they are definitely assuming that not just rationality, but their particular breed of rationality is the only moral thing that one can do. What Vircher is suggesting here, and what Goethe is suggesting by extension, what Goethe will suggest elsewhere as well, so you know it's not just Werder who believes this, um, is that passion, emotion, trauma can be considered a disease, and should be. A person who is traumatized by their circumstances should not be looked down upon because they cannot bear up under their sufferings. Instead, they should be pitied, like the Levite, you know, passing by the, the body of the person on the roadside, it is the Samaritan who's, who is the good one. A person who has been racked by their emotions, who has been you know ruined by their passions, isn't someone who is to be derided or disgraced or condemned. This is a person who needs help. It is a person who needs guidance. It is a person who needs love, compassion, and pity. So, couple things here. Again, this is a huge move away from the, what philosophers have been stressing and emphasizing up until this point. Plato considers ignorance and irrationality to be, you know, vicious, to be bad behavior. Uh, many other philosophers, including Spinoza, including Rousseau, including Wollstonecraft, including Kant, they would all largely agree to this. It has been pretty rare for a philosopher up until this point to consider irrationality to be a malady rather than a viciousness, rather than a, a deliberate choice. Up until this point, free will has been insisted upon virtually absolutely, even by some of those philosophers who consider free will to be kind of a, a nonsense idea, either because they believe that God, you know, has like foretold and foreordained all things, or if it's like Hume and they think that free will is just a word covering up for you know human nature or human uh, human impulses, human instinct. In all of these cases, they still emphasize that a human being is still responsible, still culpable for their actions. Um, even if it is instinct that led you, you should either resist that instinct or you should recognize that your instincts are so bad that you should probably be punished for them anyway. This is sort of the attitude that is undertaken in the 18th century and earlier. Here it is suggested otherwise. A person, either through their experiences or through their strong passions, whether given to them by nature or fostered in them by nurture, these things should be considered outside of their control. And therefore, a person who commits suicide, according to Werther, isn't necessarily someone who should be condemned for their cowardice and their weakness, but a person who should be pitied for their 
you know, for being overcome by their own illness, by their own mental illness. And this is an important moment, an important distinction. This is what's going to sort of enable Europe to start talking about psychological illness, to start talking about people as though they can be afflicted by their emotions in the same way that they are potentially afflicted by disease. This is the start of the conversation about mental illness in a very real sense. This is the start of the, this is the start of the conversation about trauma, about the you know suffering things outside of our control. And there are two sides to this. On the one hand, what Goethe is suggesting is that Werther should not be held accountable for his actions. Werther commits suicide because he is overwhelmed by his passions. And this is a really tricksy line here. On the one hand, I think that Goethe is right. Yes, Werther should be considered, you know, afflicted. People should be taking compassion on him. In general, people should take more compassion on each other anyway. There are no circumstances where that is not true. Um, but nonetheless, absolving Werther of all responsibility may be a step too far. And this is especially important because this book has an influence like, a lot of students read this book after Goethe had published it. College students, young men who were equally excited about their passions, and tons of people who read this book committed suicide. Like, this complicates things. Like, it even gets the name. It's called Verterism. This sort of rash of German student suicides. Indeed, European student suicides all across the continent. Like, literally hundreds, thousands of students commit suicide after reading this book. They are so carried away by Virtue's arguments. They are so enamored with Virtue's life choices. They are so, you know, caught up in this nobility of passion that uh, Goethe is describing in this passage and elsewhere. This becomes a role model to Europe. And the fact of the matter is, those suicides didn't exist before this book was published. Like, as much as there is, have been so many efforts in, in modern times to sort of distance, you know, violent movies or violent video games from, you know, a person's actions, it's not that cut and dry. Like, this is the paradigmatic example Goethe wrote a book that largely glorified suicide, and a whole bunch of people committed suicide as a consequence. Those people were, to some degree, moved by their passions, should be pitied, absolutely. Were afflicted by mental illness, for sure. But this is also the moment where that mental illness is defined. And for us to accept this as mental illness, for us to not blame those students, kind of enabled them to do this to themselves. Would they have committed suicide if Goethe hadn't said it was okay? It's hard to say. It certainly doesn't seem that obvious. This is a really fine line here. And it's a fine line that we're still dealing with today. Like that whole discussion about, you know, is depression this overblown concept that people are, you know, over-diagnosing and over-excusing themselves for? Should people really just get over themselves, toughen up in the way that, you know, the Enlightenment philosophers are sort of telling Virtue to behave, the way that Albert here is telling Virtue to behave? Or should be we or should we be more sensitive? Should we be more careful in sort of assessing what a person has suffered, what sort of trauma excuses their behavior. It's very tricky. 
And when Freud starts to try and diagnose these sorts of traumas, these sorts of sufferings, it's not entirely clear how much of that is honest intellectual inquiry, sort of, you know, trying to scientifically observe the phenomenon of people suffering great trauma or people who, you know, literally cannot control their passions, and how many people feel enabled by this sort of treatment to go ahead and act out, to act viciously, to excuse their own misbehavior on the grounds that they are suffering too much. It's really complicated, and I do not claim to know where the lines are here. I do not want to claim to know where the lines are here. What I do want to say is, as I said before, take compassion on everyone, for one thing, but in your own life, be very careful about what you are willing to excuse, what you are willing to allow yourself to do. Virtue may have had other options. Virtue may not necessarily have had to commit suicide. And if somebody had helped him, it may have been different. So don't, you know, kill yourself, for sure. Like, don't do that. Don't. No. Bad. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you need help, seek help. Like, it's so incredibly complicated. This is going to get tricky. It's going to get even trickier in the time that goes on. What I want to emphasize here is that this conversation wasn't happening before this. People didn't think of it in these terms. Enlightenment philosophy, modern philosophy, medieval philosophy, ancient philosophy, they all tend to agree that a person is responsible 100% for their actions. Some ancients are willing to admit that you can get carried away by the gods. Like, that's a whole other conversation and absolutely something that we sort of glossed over when we were talking about Plato, because Plato himself is not terribly interested in that. Like, this is pre-Plato Greek philosophy, tends to get into that. And Nietzsche will bring it up and we'll address it there. Um, but for our purposes, we need to stress the way that we talk about this, the way that we understand people's emotions, changes with Romanticism. It goes from being something that they should aspire to control and that they should, in practicing virtue, command over themselves, rationality should triumph over the emotions, to virtue stressing not only are emotions something that can't be controlled in many cases, but we shouldn't control them. And that's, again, a really important element of romantic thought that flies in the face of virtually all the philosophers that have come before but also is a worthy philosophical idea in its own right. Again, when I stress how important romanticism is to the history of love and friendship, this is what I have in mind. Up until now, love has been either something to be perfected deliberately or something to be restrained deliberately. Goethe is introducing a third option, namely that love should be endured, suffered, savored, in some cases. Notice that when Virtue actually does commit suicide, he has no regrets. Like, there's no moment where he's like, damn, if only Albert had realized what was going on and given me Charlotte, then everything would be alright. No. Virtue sees this as the natural consequence of his life. He regrets nothing. If anything, he is glad that Charlotte has prepared the pistols for him, as though she's giving her stamp of approval to Virtue's actions. Virtue sees this as inevitable the natural consequence of events. And what Goethe is very much driving home here is that, again, Virtue cannot be held responsible for his actions. There is no other way out for him. 
There is no alternative. There is no way that this could have gone differently. The fact that Vircher destroys his own life, ruins Charlotte's, and probably does a pretty great deal of harm to Albert's as well is beside the point. This is just the way these things go, Goethe will stress. And in other works as well, like Faust, he will very much emphasize this suffering, in some sense, ennobles anyone and everyone involved. This is the weird romantic paradox. Suffering makes us stronger. Suffering makes us better. The trauma we experience, the emotional highs and lows, these are not to be avoided. This is a huge part of the human experience, and the true romantic hero charges into them with eyes wide open. They do not resist these temptations, they indulge in them. They do not prevent themselves from drinking deep of the most intoxicating elements of life. Instead, they drink deep and are intoxicated. Vircher dies, he commits suicide, and as much as Goethe seems to hedge it, he does seem to approve of Vircher's decision here. But on the other side of it, he's also very much stressing that we should love Vircher, not condemn him. He is not a villain, he is not a coward. He is a human being. A human being in a greater sense than all of those Enlightenment rational folks like Albert who have restrained themselves from feeling as deeply what Virtue here has felt. In fact, in Faust Part 1, this is Goethe's great masterpiece and the national drama of the German state, in Faust Part 1 he stresses that Faust, in drinking deeply, in constantly striving, in constantly suffering, in charging with eyes open into all of life's experience, is in fact a hero. As much as he ruins lives everywhere that he goes, as much as he destroys poor Gretchen by, you know, seducing her and then, like, destroying her family and destroying her life, as much as he does all of these things, he is heroic for doing so. He is absolutely doing what he is meant to do, what God has designed him to do. And indeed, God at the beginning of Faust Part 1 says, Do you know my servant Faust? He follows me confusedly, just as was said about Job back in the Bible. Goethe is reframing the way we understand love. And at the end of Faust Part 2, he does something so similar to Dante's Divine Comedy that it is impossible to overlook. Namely, he announces that Gretchen has saved Faust by the virtue of their love together, and Jesus and God don't even show up to sort of undercut the blasphemy here. Romanticism considers love, and the suffering of love specifically, the passion of love, not the sort of spiritualization of love, not the idealization of love, not the rationalization of love, not the sort of like love as an offshoot of God. No, love purely in and for itself, erotic love, love detached from all that Christian charity nonsense, that love alone is enough to save, is the highest force in the universe for Goethe and for the Romantics. This is a whole new idea, and I want to stress this because it is absolutely a world-shaking idea. The discussion of love is never going to be the same. The idea that love is not just something that carries us away, like the courtly lovers used to say, but something that totally overmasters and can even destroy us, 
the idea that those destroyed by love are in fact the lucky ones, the ones who have felt life more deeply than the rest of us. This is brand new, and it is very dangerous. If the deaths of all those students is any indication. So we need to talk about this. We need to talk about what Goethe means for the rest of Europe, why Goethe is writing this, and why it resonates with the rest of Europe, and how it's going to change the rest of Europe going forward. Now we've talked about all of those important, weird, like historical details that make the Enlightenment what it is, and I want to stress, there were many of them, and I probably missed a few, and History is just wildly complicated. There are a whole bunch of different threads that are twining together and coming to ends at various points. We are just seeing knots along the way. Like we talked about, you know, the Industrial Revolution and all of those workers suffering and dying in the cities. We talked about, you know, the rise of science. We talked about Dante's, you know, trans transcendent love, and we see how it very much informs what Goethe is talking about here. We've also talked about the other historical elements. Again, rationality is sort of this potentially some potential solution to all of the world's problems, and to build new governments. And yet at the same time as this going on, we also have the North Atlantic slave trade and all of these oppressed cultures under the thumb of these various imperialistic European nations. Continuing from this giant mess that is the end of the Enlightenment, we sort of capped it off by talking about the American Revolution. We stress that this is sort of the highest accomplishment of the Enlightenment. This perfectly rational political system that is going to then govern this, you know, idealistically made country for hundreds of years to come. But I warned you then, and it's time to talk about it now, the French Revolution gives the lie to all of this Enlightenment philosophy. Because the French Revolution, like the American Revolution, is totally founded on Enlightenment principles. They are very much arguing, you know, we're getting rid of the monarchy because, as Kant said, republics are in. The, the monarchs governed by the will of the people according to the social contract theory that, that Rousseau and that Locke had outlined. It is therefore the right of the people to depose their leaders when their leaders are no longer obeying them. This is literally the same stuff that was on the Declaration of Independence. Like, what the U.S., founders were saying is very much the same thing that the early revolutionaries in the French Revolution are saying. They are saying we should usher in a new republic, we should usher in a new age, we should usher in this utopian society. But where the American Revolution was a fight against the British armies and no kings got decapitated because they were far away in England, and because the English were so far away they couldn't very much reinforce the colonies and therefore had to let them go eventually, the French Revolution is taking place in Louis XVI's backyard. It is happening on the streets of Paris. They storm the Bastille, they free all the prisoners, they raid the noble housing, they eventually capture Louis XVI and his family, and they behead them. They decapitate them on the guillotine. And the guillotine is this perfect symbol of Enlightenment philosophy gone horribly, horribly wrong. Because the guillotine is this scientifically designed machine of death, praised at the time because it is indifferent. It cuts neatly through all heads equally. No longer are we worrying about the bluntness of the axe or the bias of the executioner. No, this machine is impersonal, calculating, rational, indifferent, just. And yet it is responsible for so many deaths. It is a tool of carnage and destruction in the French Revolution. It is the Enlightenment embodied as a weapon. 
as something that destroys. The French Revolution quickly goes off the rails. The first generation of revolutionaries are quickly supplanted and decapitated by the second wave of revolutionaries. And in 20 years, it is just anarchy, utter chaos in France. Until, as often happens in these situations, with this power vacuum, a tyrant arises, Napoleon Bonaparte, who will seize control of the French, lead them to this nationalistic identity, and then lead his armies across the fields of Europe, slashing and burning and instituting democracy, or his shadow version of democracy, everywhere that he goes. He is the first terrifying threat that Europe has faced to its entire like continent since the Thirty Years' War and earlier. We have not seen a tyrant of this magnitude in many, many years, although we are going to see quite a few of them in the years to come. Napoleon takes over Europe all the way to Russia. Nobody can stand in his way. He seems to be completely unstoppable, and only because he has sort of like waged so much war and spread his forces so thin that the Russians are able to push him back and gradually his empire contracts until he's defeated at Waterloo, with the help of the Brits, with the help of the Russians, with the help of anyone who can muster forces at this point in time. But this is the Europe he leaves behind. Scarred, broken, scared, and very, very much not what it used to be. For a variety of reasons. On the one hand, a lot of these nations are getting their first taste of democracy, and the people who are looking at their monarchs are saying to themselves, you know, we could probably get rid of them too. And for the first half of the 19th century, it is just going to be revolution after revolution after revolution, culminating in 1848, when basically every country in Europe loses its shit. There are revolutions in virtually every major city across the continent, and many, many monarchies are going to either disappear, or they are going to be very, very changed after 1848. What's more, 1848 is also the moment at which one of the most influential philosophical texts in the history of philosophy is published, namely Marx's Communist Manifesto. But we need to preface before we can get to that. I've been stressing that this is all the product of the French Revolution. We need to talk about exactly what the deal is with the French Revolution. And again, I want to stress, the French Revolution and all of these other revolutions are as much a product of this political upheaval, as much a product of this Enlightenment utopian thinking, as it is a product of Industrial Revolution unrest. All of those people crammed together into these cities, working in really terrible conditions, doing jobs that have no redeeming value, that threaten their lives and livelihoods with every day, those people are angry. And because literacy has been on the rise ever since the printing press was invented, like we've gone from the 3% in the medieval period to the 10% in the Renaissance to like the 20 and 30 and 40 and probably even 50% in the 19th century, it is a whole new world. Lots of people are reading, lots of people are taking in these ideas, and lots of people are discontent with the state of affairs. There is a huge gap between those rich, noble eggheads who have been ruling Europe for centuries and the people at the bottom of the ladder who are getting sat on by their industrialist overlords. They are mad. They are mad as hell. And it is the 
these people who are largely the motivating force behind both the French Revolution and all the revolutions that will succeed it. And keep in mind, when we say French Revolution, you have to clarify. Like, the French Revolution I'm talking about that yields with, or that leads to Napoleon taking over, is the French Revolution that takes place between the 1780s and the 1800s. But there's like three more French Revolutions between 1820 and 1850. Some led by Napoleon, some indifferent to Napoleon. Like, they're just always revolting. This is going to become the new normal. But notice that this puts people in this sort of panicked, violent state at all times. Like, the government is terrified that they're going to be overthrown, and that they're, as a consequence, constantly putting down these sorts of riots and revolutions. And these factory workers are rioting all the time. Like, they are very, very mad. Um, and yet, there's not a whole heck of a lot changing for them either. Again, the nobles are too entrenched. They don't know how to deal with this situation. They don't know even what they would concede, much less actually concede it. Um, but, and I want to stress this, remember too that this is all Enlightenment philosophy that is motivating it. All of the French revolutions, all of these various revolutions that are springing up as a consequence, they're springing from Enlightenment-era philosophy. This idea that there is a better world out there. The idea that Kant was suggesting that all governments should be republics in order for there to be peace and prosperity. Kant said this, and all of those nobles were like, yeah, that's a great idea. Republics are awesome. Kant's like, are you going to make a republic? Oh, no, no, we're the king here, so we're not going to stop that. Good grief. Or don't be ridiculous. This won't fly anymore. People want their republics. They want their democracies. Admittedly, when they get them, they don't typically go too terribly well. Like, the French Revolution had quite a few democracies and republics in and amongst its general chaos. They do not last. They disappear. Uh, they are very much taken over the first time somebody with enough charisma and military might shows, shows up to take things over, i.e. Napoleon. And trust me, the people of France, as much as they were upset with it by the monarchs, the minute that tyrant shows up, they're like, yes, give us more Napoleon. Napoleon is still, to this day, a French national hero, as much as he is a tyrant who totally co-opted the revolution and just ignored all of the idealism that was going on behind the scenes. The Enlightenment-era principles have failed. And that's the takeaway here. Or at least that's the takeaway for most of the philosophers writing in the early half and the later half of the 19th century. They're looking at the Enlightenment and saying, that did not work. And in fact, it was a giant trick. It deceived us. It made us complacent. We sat there and bought all this rationality and objectivity and science nonsense, and meanwhile, it was just setting up all of this death and destruction. Romanticism, as much as it is this profound art movement, is a philosophical movement in its own right. A philosophical movement that rejects the principles of, en of Enlightenment thinking, rejects the idea of universal rationality, of a rationally constituted state, and says instead, let us raise up the passions. Let us raise up the people. Let us raise up the state of nature, as Rousseau was talking about it. And all of these romantics, rather than painting, you know, these important historical subjects like, you know, portraits of great kings or important, like, saints and heroes or important episodes from classical literature, instead they're very much arguing, let's instead go back to nature. Science has failed us. 
The Enlightenment has failed us. Rationality has failed us. Let us instead idealize the peasant farmer or the peasant girl and her family. Or, you know, let us instead idealize the working man, the, the, stru the struggle to survive, the poor person trying to eke out a living rather than the nobles sitting in their high towers. And in the process, because we haven't talked about this very much, through that whole scientific revolution to enlightenment to now this romanticism perspective, God has changed a lot, too. Christianity has metamorphosed a lot. Like I stressed, you know, back when we were talking about Dante, that he was borderline blasphemy. That his whole argument that, like, Beatrice is the saving force in his life, and that, you know, he sees the Virgin Mary sitting on the highest throne, and then he sees beyond her to, I guess, God Jesus and stuff, but whatever. Like, this was a huge deprioritization of Christian theology, and especially Catholic theology in its time. You know, as much as, like, all of these philosophers from Aquinas to and earlier have been emphasizing the importance, the significance, the, you know, omnipotence of God and Jesus, that has been very much on the way. Between the Protestant Reformation shaking everybody's faith in the Catholic Church and the further dis disintegration of the Protestant churches into all of these squabbling sort of schism schisms and factions, in addition to the rise of science at the same time, Christianity has not been doing great. And I stressed in our discussion of the Enlightenment that while the Founding Fathers do proclaim to believe in God, they follow this sort of deistic tendency in Enlightenment religion. This idea that God sort of put the rational laws of the universe into motion and then took a nap. Like, is no longer watching us. Is letting us try to figure out our circumstances by ourselves. It is now on us to figure out our lives and our governments and our priorities. The Romantics are going to change God again where God was the sort of indifferent observer, sort of typical of the Enlightenment philosopher, the romantic version of God is basically a personification of nature itself. So you will see tons of paintings that are just giant landscapes, and they will have religious titles, or they will emphasize religious objects. Like one of my all-time favorite romantic paintings is Monk by the Sea. And it's literally this tiny little monk standing on the edge of a cliff, and the rest of the huge painting is just ocean and sky and the tumult of these forces at work. That, to the Romantics, is God. God is the storm. God is the ocean. God is the sky. God is nature in all of its power and might all around us. He is untamed, he is unchecked, and he is, to some degree, not merciful, just with the cruelty of nature rather than the straightforward mathematics of Enlightenment philosophy. This god hides in some sense. And Goethe makes this explicit in Faust Part 1. He has this speech where Gretchen is asking him, do you just not believe in God? And while the Romantics generally have a like high respect for peasant religion, like there are tons of Romantics who will absolutely celebrate the sort of simple-minded faith in God that they see in, the, in peasant communities in the, in the rural areas. At the same time, for the enlightened romantic, for the you know scholarly romantic, the proper approach to God is to see God as 
totally incomprehensible, totally unknowable, not the God of the Bible, not the God of Christianity, not the God of, of Catholicism or Protestantism, but rather God as this all-consuming force, this pantheistic kind of God, this God who is all around us at all times, but is so mysterious and so incomprehensible that we cannot even claim that he is moral. Like, that's how Faust characterizes God, and this is very much the model that we're going to see in Byron, Wordsworth, and all of the Romantic poets through this period. So Christianity has changed. And while I hesitate to say that the Romantics were not Christians, they themselves would have rankled at that, it is certainly a very different kind of Christianity than we have seen before. It is not its own religion. I can't point and be like, oh, well, yes, all the Presbyterians were Romantics. No, it's not like that. It's a radically different approach to God, separate from the church, totally independent of the church. And many romantics will definitely tend towards atheism and carry lots of other thinkers along with them. The real nail in this coffin, though, is when Schleiermacher shows up and starts legitimately criticizing and questioning the authority and the, the sort of provenance of the Bible. He introduces a critical scholarship surrounding the biblical works, sort of tries to take out, demythologize all of the supposed supernatural instances recorded in the Bible, and try to recreate the Bible by eliminating the myth. And like Rousseau's really terrible scholarship, Schleiermacher is engaged in a lot of speculation here, and while there are a lot of valuable things that the Schleiermacherian uh, critical school comes up with, including some really interesting ideas of textual criticism. At the end of the day, Schleiermacher is pretty indifferent to the truth or falsity of Christianity. Instead, he is definitely solidifying the critical academic world against Christianity. Uh, and it, this is just going to carry into the late 19th and, and 20th centuries. It is this kind of scholarship that makes for a rigorous atheist scholarly community that is engaged in sort of questioning and judging the Bible on its own standards, rather than letting Christians sort of decide what gets said and what is appropriate to say about the Bible. Atheism is going to ride high in the 19th century. It was already much more tolerated in the 18th century than at any other time before this. In the 19th century, it will become the norm, fashionable. Um, it is more, you know, noble, more uh, refined to be an atheist than it is to be a Christian. And that love of peasant Christianity, of that sort of simple-minded faith, that is going to increasingly sound condescending. Um, it's sort of like, oh, look at them, they're so cute. Like, you know, that's as much a death blow to Christianity as any of the scholarship that's going on. Anytime that you sort of reduce it to something small and, and tawdry, anytime that you sort of adore it not you know, for its own, for what it says, for its own sake, but rather because it is adorable. That is the death blow, for sure. Um, and Christianity will not recover from what happens to it in this 19th century romanticism. We will still see Christian scholars. There are definitely holdouts, and some of them are really important, so we're going to definitely keep an eye on that. But keep in mind that these are now apologists. They defend Christianity. Where Aquinas was, you know, writing a textbook for everyone to read because everyone agrees of the truths of Christianity, Kierkegaard, Lewis, Chesterton, these are very much 
outliers, saying that Christianity has justification, has rational ground, has a basis in reality, more than any other of the other scholars, artists, philosophers of the time are willing to admit. Uh, so Christianity is also very changed. And we'll talk about that more when we get to Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, and the other critics, um, especially in our next discussion. But in addition to talking about the whole Christianity historical sweep thing, like we also need to talk about just what is going on in philosophy at this point. Um, in the first half of the 19th century, in this 18, say, 100 to 1850 period, philosophy is doing some really interesting things. On the one hand, you have all of those followers of Kant, the Fichte and the Neo-Kantians, all sort of hanging around, emphasizing Enlightenment philosophy, even as Romanticism is picking up speed and energy, and even as all these revolutions are going on. Like, they are very much insisting, you know, the world is still constituted rationally, morality is still in force. Um, yes, we are still working towards the end of history. But in addition to the Kantians arguing, we have this new huge force on the scene, namely Hegel. And we didn't read Hegel's chunk in the philosophy of erotic love, because again, I didn't find it terribly good. Um, but Hegel totally shakes up all the philosophy that has gone before. Hegel is the most romantic of the romantic philosophers. Unlike Kant, who is very much grounded in his cold rationality and his, you know, categories and his mental, you know, epistemological project, sort of looking at how science can be justified, giving what he understands about the mind and about rationality, Hegel starts philosophy in a totally new direction. He is going to basically embark on a retelling of the history of the world using this sort of quasi-mystical, quasi-spiritual approach called phenomenology. And the phenomenology of spirit, Hegel's sort of groundbreaking work that really set the stage for the rest of his philosophy and very much changed the world to come, is absolutely this incredibly important work at this time, written in the early part of the 19th century in like the 1800s, like before the 1810s, the 18 aughts. Um, he writes this book and publishes it, and he's immediately got this huge following. Um, there are a lot of different groups of Hegelians, like there's the young Hegelians who take it in one way, and there's like the old Hegelians who take it in another way, it's this whole thing. Um, suffice it to say that Hegel's method is, rather than using this sort of very logical, very sort of like um, scientific style, he is going the opposite direction. He is going to write mystically in this sort of abstract way. He's going to re-describe history, but he's going to describe history as this play of forces. The human spirit, the human identity coming to know itself. Like Kant, he agrees that this, the entirety of human history has been this sort of long story leading up to this point, and we are at the precipice, we are at the peak of human accomplishment, and we are just waiting to usher in the utopian world. Like, the end of the phenomenology of spirit ends with absolute reason, the sort of final collapse of thesis and antithesis into synthesis this sort of perfect world where all of us are sort of aware of our own place in the history of human beings, and this utopian ideal will finally be realized. There will be no more philosophy, Hegel says, because we will have attained perfect knowledge. 
this is, on the one hand, hardcore enlightenment. It's got that utopian vibe to it. It's got that historical re revisionism vibe to it. It's got that whole, let's look at the progress of humanity and see how far we've come vibe to it. But at the same time, its approach is not enlightenment. Its approach is radically romantic. Very much sort of engaged with the human instinct rather than the human intellect. Very much sort of looking at the drives that have been pushing humanity to this point rather than humanity deliberately carving its place for itself in the way that the scientists and the moderns have sort of emphasized. So Hegel is very much this sort of borderline work. And virtually everybody who comes after Hegel, Schopenhauer, Kierkegaard, Marx, Nietzsche to some degree, all of these thinkers are going to be indebted to Hegel's view of the universe. Because for Hegel, this comes about. These forces that are playing are always in conflict. The world has become what it is. Human society has, come, has become what it, is, what it is. Spirit has realized itself for what it is through conflict, through one ideology being put into stark contrast with another ideology, those two ideologies fighting amongst themselves and at the same time dissolving into a third independent ideology, a synthesis of those two ideologies. But that's not it, because that ideology will itself break into its component ideologies. It will have its sort of opponent ideology facing it. It's this whole thing. Like, the phenomenology of spirit is fascinating, it is also incredibly weird and incredibly difficult to read. Um, I kind of love Hegel, like, secretly or not so secretly, and I've spent a weird amount of my career studying him. Um, and he is truly fascinating. But what I want to emphasize here is how much of an embodiment of romantic ideology it actually is. Like, it's impossible to excerpt Hegel in such a way that this comes out. Like, you kind of have to see the whole picture. And I definitely do not have the time to teach, like, 300 pages of the Phenomenology of Spirit to sort of get at this. Um, or even 100 pages. Like, I would feel bad assigning any Hegel um, more complicated than, you know, again, what we find in our textbook. And even that was rough. But at the very least, keep this in mind, Hegel is a scholar of conflict. And Romanticism is a philosophy and an aesthetic of conflict. Romanticism holds up the struggle, the suffering, the, you know, constant battle of wills between the poor and the rich, or the, you know, the Christians versus the atheists. Like, these ideologies coming into conflict is what Romanticism is all about. Vircher is not heroic because he, you know, rationally extricates himself from his love for Charlotte. Vircher is heroic because he dies for what he believes in. Because he suffers. Because every fiber of his being is bound up in his struggle to overcome his situation, to gain Charlotte for himself, to love Charlotte. And whether or not you perceive him as struggling and failing or struggling and succeeding... Virtue is the paradigm of romantic thought. He struggles. He suffers. Struggles and suffers until he dies. And he is not weak for his death. He is not a failure for his death. No, he is a hero for his death. And in this whole royal of philosophical and political issues on this whole industrial revolution discontent and the sort of disappearance of religion from the stage. In all of this comes Marx. 
The Communist Manifesto takes Hegelian conflict-driven historical revisionism sort of philosophy and adapts it, makes it more concrete. She boils down all of Hegel's mysticism into this one crucial conflict that Marx describes as being the definitive conflict throughout all of history, namely class conflict. The rich against the poor, with the middle class being the opportunists trying to gain a foothold over the rich. In the Communist Manifesto, in classic Enlightenment fashion, Marx promises that the goal of history, the march of history to this point, has culminated at this moment, this moment when the revolution is on the cusp of happening. But unlike Kant, who would have said that like it's going to be ushered in by all these republics, Marx is saying the workers are going to rise up. They're going to kill off all those high-class people and all the bourgeoisie. They're going to take the means of production for themselves, and they're going to own the means of production. They will rule themselves. The proletariat will govern itself in this government structure that Marx calls communism. This ideal, utopian sort of society, but one that is fought for, that people die to achieve. As much as Marx is stressing we are looking at prosperity and peace and utopia, it can only be won through bloodshed, revolution, and violence. And it is the proletariat's birthright to undertake this. Go, he says, workers of the world unite. Strike down your masters. Take this for yourself. And this is going to define the back half of the 19th century in European history. From 1850 onwards, writers are going to absolutely have their finger on the pulse of this kind of revolt. There are going to be anarchist uprisings all over the freaking place. People are going to be scared that the proletariat is going to rise up and overthrow their governments or, you know, just wreck entire cities. People are going to, at the same time as they're trying to maintain order, also try and keep the proletariat happy, lest this happen. It's going to be a very tricky business. Romanticism itself is going to sort of wane in the back half of the 19th century, giving way to realism, the sort of realistic depiction of working conditions in the 19th century, the realistic depiction of like actual industry happening, the going from glorifying like the simple life in the in the countryside and the sort of state of nature that Rousseau was talking about to glorifying the actual business of business, the actual like modes of production and the actual progress, in part because Romanticism is in its way a, Rome, a revolutionary ideology, but it is also co-opted by rich people in some sense. Realism, by contrast, glorifies the poor, glorifies the people struggling to survive, glorifies the people doing the work instead of the people harvesting that work. And so it will all change again. And we'll talk about that more when we get to it, when we start talking about sort of the counter-revolutionary 19th century philosophers, or rather the more revolutionary 19th century philosophers who are arguing against Romanticism and Realism both. It's going to be a lot. Um, so what do we take away from this? Because I do, in fact, want to wrap this up, and I do want to keep it relatively short so we can you know, focus on what is truly important here. For one thing, keep in mind what Romanticism is doing to our understanding of love and friendship. Now, lovers are those who 
burn passionately for one another, who are doomed by their suffering and by their love of one another. Friends, likewise, are the people who make anarchist societies, who do, in fact, plot against the state. You know, just as we've been saying for all of, through all of these philosophers, through, you know, Cicero and Montaigne and company, you know, the tyrant is always leery of friendships. Well, friendships now are understood as being the bonds of human beings against their tyrants, against the, the forces that tyrannize them, against the monarchies, against the political systems, against the economic systems, against the industrialists. You know, this is frequently how friendship is going to be framed. That's not to say that every philosopher is writing like this. If anything, it's really dangerous to start glorifying the plight of the proletariat in this way. And as much as realism does sort of glorify the worker, it rarely ever depicts the violence that that sort of uh, devolves into. The 19th century is going to be a time of remarkable care and control of propaganda in some sense. The censors will be active after that giant series of revolutions in 1948. But the war is a cold one and it is definitely ongoing. Um, things are going to be boiling under the surface. And various political factions are going to use this to, advantage, to their advantage. Like Otto von Bismarck is going to strive forward as the representative of the people when he institutes his sort of unification of Germany and brings about this yet more conservative regime that will in fact like give way to Kaiser Wilhelm and all that fun stuff in World War I. We'll talk about that later. But suffice it to say that these political forces are very much roiling under the surface. It is a time of great uncertainty, of great fear. Um, it is a time of great upheaval, great scientific accomplishments. You know, the Industrial Revolution has not stopped because people are upset about it. Like, on the contrary, this is when the steam engine is going to be invented, and now we're going to have railroads and telegraphs. We're going to have steamships. We're going to have brand new weaponry, you know, rifles that shoot with much more accuracy than before, um, changing the face of warfare and changing the face of tactics as well. We're going to have giant cannons and artillery that are going to fire over massive distances, changing the nature of, of the battlefield. Like, all of this is going to be happening at the same time. We're going to see the first developments in electricity being developed in the latter part of the 19th century and into the 20th. We're going to see, you know, gas works created to sort of create, like, gas lighting systems for the cities. And in the process of all of this scientific analysis of technology, of, like, material wealth and material, you know, inventions, we're also going to see philosophy change to match. We're going to see science sort of industrializing its project, and we're going to see Darwin show up and sort of retell the story of how humans came to be without the religious connotations from a purely scientific, purely rational perspective. We're going to see all of those psychologists and sociologists start to appear and sort of scientifically apply their knowledge to the human psyche, to the human uh, character. And once again, that Virchherian uh, notion that we should treat emotions as potentially being mental illness, well, now we're going to categorize and classify all the potential mental illnesses, and in the process do quite a bit of damage to the human psyche, I suspect, as we'll see with Freud. Um, it's going to be a time of great study as well. All of this is going to yield, let's study the population, let's study how we can control it, let's study how we should properly disseminate, you know, 
food and supplies? How should we, you know, treat sexuality and love? And to some degree, for the first time, these cultures are going to be direct in their methods. Propaganda is being invented here, at least in its most blatant and obvious forms. It's gonna be a nutty, wild ride. Um, so, again, the big takeaways, things are changing, romanticism is changing philosophy, love is now something that is mortal and passionate and violent as much as it is something that is noble and beautiful and good. And I want to stress all of our understanding of, of romance today, like our 21st century notions of, of what a romantic love involves, our notion that one can fall in love very much derives from this romantic ideal. As much as we are definitely the product of the ancient Greeks, of the Old Testament and the New Testament, of the Romans and of medieval philosophy, as much as we are the inheritors of Montaigne and of Milton and of Spinoza and of all of the Enlightenment thinkers, Romanticism is a powerful new philosophy and it has a long reach. We will not, whether it's good or bad, be able to fully understand or extirpate it from our understanding of love now that it's on the table. And I suspect more than any other single philosophical perspective, romanticism is one of the dominant ideas underlying our contemporary notions of love. And again, part of the reason why I stress this is because it's not all good. You know, Virtur is self-destructive. Virtur is a dangerous role model for us to sort of take as our ideal lover. And yet he is definitely in the DNA of all of our contemporary ideal lovers, of all of our contemporary doomed lovers, star-crossed lovers, however we want to call them. Just as Romeo and Juliet is this thing that we hold up, it's probably as much an it's probably romanticism as much as anything else that causes us to value that play. Like, this is the way that history works. This is the way that all of these threads come together, weave into new patterns, become new things for us to sort of pour over and discuss, evaluate, and get caught up by. The world isn't rational anymore in the 19th century, and it won't be anymore. Like, the age of enlightenment, the modern goals, those are gone. What we are going to see coming into its place, the postmodernism of Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, of Freud, of Sartre, of Wittgenstein, of many of the philosophers to come, will very much put to bed any thought that enlightenment is something that we want or can have back or should have back. But we'll talk about that more. At any rate, we'll leave you there. Um, there's a lot going on here that we didn't discuss. There's a lot of ideas under the surface that I haven't had time to sort of tease out. Um, unfortunately, most of the philosophers we are going to read from here on out aren't going to be that interested in romanticism. Romanticism is the air they breathe. They are responding to it, reacting to it, in the same way that romanticism reacted to and rejected Enlightenment philosophy. Um, so we're just going to see more and more directions springing out of this. Romanticism is probably in the background of every philosopher we're going to read from here on out because it's that important and that groundbreaking, but very few of them are going to call themselves romantics. Um, it's just part of the world now. 
Um, so we'll talk about that more. Hopefully, if there is anything that I've seriously missed and need to bring up, I will think of it later. Until then, I hope that this has been enlightening. I hope that you have not been too carried away by Virtue's plight. And I hope that we get to sort of analyze Romanticism more concretely and more carefully in the future. Until then, happy reading, and I look forward to talking to you soon.